0: This is KMTT, and this is Ezra Bek. I'm sitting here in Gush Etzion. The KMTT is a project which has arisen out of Yeshivat Haaretzion in Gush Etzion. Actually, it's a direct uh, continuation and result of a project which has been running here for 11 years called the Virtual Beit Midrash, which many of you are familiar with. The BBM works on email, text. No audio, and for the last uh, twelve years, for the last twelve years, VBM has been sending between fifteen and twenty shiurim a week to today about twenty thousand people all over the world. And uh, this year, the VBM decided to uh, simply continue developing, and we've gone now into audio, and these are the broadcasts to which you're listening. The VBM itself is quite a large project and is supported by, by its users, together with a very generous donation, an annual donation that's made in honor of Israel Koshitsky Zal, which is why the BBM is called the Israel Koshitsky Virtual Beit Midrash. Israel Koshitsky was a great philanthropist in his life, and, and after his, his passing, after his death 11 years ago, has continued to be a great philanthropist uh, through the uh, instrumentation of the Virtual Beit Midrash. This project, the KMTT project, is now in its pilot stage, so the pilot stage is being made available by a generous grant from the Kashitsky family, it's a continuation of their uh, commitment to spreading Torah in this manner. And that's why, in the meantime, so long as the pilot keeps running, we have the funds to, to maintain this program. Shivat HaRatzion is the parent institution on which the BBM, KMTT, and as well as a number of other projects, all uh, all rest. And so actually, you can really view the uh, broadcast as a kind of Radio Retzion. This is the broadcast of Yeshivat HaRetzion. Torah in Yeshivat. is in the Beit Midrash. The original motto of the BBM was to open up the windows of the Beit Midrash and have people be in the Beit Midrash without being in the Beit Midrash. And that's what KMTT is as well. The Beit Midrash is to some extent closed. You have to actually be inside and sit at a table to be able to learn to run the Beit Midrash. And KMTT is broadcasting the Beit Midrash of Yeshivat HaRatzion, Beit Midrash of Torah Israel, to, to the entire world. This week's Pasha is Parashat Ve'eva. This is the Erev Shabbat program, our weekly Erev Shabbat program for Parashat Ve'eva. In the beginning of the Pasha you have the Torah describes and says that Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu to go to Paro. Then immediately afterwards, there comes this lineage. It lists the children of Yaakov, the children of Uvein, the children of uh, of uh, Shimon, then the children of Levi and gets to Moshe Rabbeinu. Then it stops. And then afterwards it says the God tells Moshe Rabbeinu to go to Paro. It's the exact same person that appeared before the lineage. It's very difficult to know what's going on, and there's a big discussion among the Mefashem. Was it? Was he told twice? Is it the same thing? Why is it told the same thing? So one very very interesting explanation that I've heard says the following: It's the exact same thing. God told Moshe Rabbeinu to go to Parang. Then the Torah tells us exactly how Moshe Rabbeinu is related to Yaakov Avinu. In, in context of other children. It's true, it doesn't continue after Levi, but it brings you all of Uvain and all of Shimon and then all of Levi. And then it tells us again that Moshe is being sent to God. Who Moshe Aaron? This is the same Moshe ve'aron that I just told you, who was a grandson of Kahat, the son of Levi, the son of Yaakov, he's the one who was told to go to Parel. Why does it tell us he was the same Moshe Bainu? Because let's face it, Moshe Banu is a very strange Jew his education is Egyptian, and he's coming to the Jews for Midian, where he spent the last couple of years, as a shepherd for Kohen Midian, for Yitro. He's not rooted sociologically, educationally, in the Jewish people. So the Pasuk is one telling us, and I think the Pasuk is telling Moshe Abenu, that Moshe is not a an emissary from outside. Moshe Rabbeinu, it gives us the lineage of Moshe Rabbeinu, because were Moshe Rabbeinu to be some sort of a, of an Egyptian prince who likes the Jews, or a Midianite free man who wants to help the Jews, someone who's coming to liberate the Jews from outside, he wouldn't be able to do it. The reason why Moshe Rabbeinu can be God's messenger to Paro, who Asher Amar Hashem, Leich Paro, the reason why Moshe Rabbeinu can do that is because he really is a Jew. And I think not just telling us that, but also telling Moshe Rabbeinu, or making it clear that it's true for Moshe Rabbeinu, that Moshe Rabbeinu is indeed rooted, despite his education, despite his upbringing, despite the years that he spent away, and the fact that he never actually was a slave in Egypt. And according to the Chazal, neither was Avon, because Shevet Levi was not enslaved. but Especially Moshe Rabbeinu, he was never a slave in Egypt, but but he's just as much rooted in the Jewish lineage as the other Jews, and that's why he can represent God and represent the Jews before before Paro. The idea that someone can come from outside, not really to the Jewish people, this happens in other contexts as well. Someone can come from outside and in a sort of paternalistic manner. I'm free. I'm able. I wish to give this over to you. There's a basic flaw in that sort of a picture. And at least in this case, you don't have to lower yourself, but you have to have the identification and the rootedness in the people whom you're trying to help. To come from outside, to come from above, and simply grant them, bestow upon them the benefits of your superior education, it, doesn't, it can't be accepted. And Moshe Benu not merely has to speak to Paro, but he also has to speak to the Jews. He has to represent the Jews to Paro, and he has to speak to the Jews from within themselves. And Moshe Rabbeinu has achieved that, and that's what the pasuk is telling us, don't think Moshe Rabbeinu is coming from the Moon to save the Jews. Moshe Rabbeinu is the son of Amram, is the son of Kat, is the son of Levi, is the, son of, uh, the son of Yaakov. My guest today is Harav Rani Ziegler, who is the Director of the Archives and of Research at the Torah Salaf Foundation. The Torah Foundation has been printing for the last few years books and collections of essays of Rav Saloveitchik on different topics. The latest book, which is probably not yet in the bookstores, is a collection on Chagah Pesach. In this particular case, at least some of the lectures in the book, I actually heard, and therefore I know that it's a very, very good book. Uh, we've asked Arav Ziegler to tell us a little bit about his work and what what uh, we can expect in the future from the books of Arav Saloveitchik. Arav Rani Ziegler.
1: Rav Soloveitchik used to say that he inherited a genetic disease from his family, and that was the reluctance to publish. They used to say in his family, not everything that is thought should be said, not everything that is said should be written, and not everything that is written should be published. Consequently, his father and grandfather published almost nothing in their lifetimes, and Rav Soloveitchik also published relatively little in his lifetime. However, he did leave hundreds of unpublished manuscripts, These were not just notes or jottings, but they were fully written and edited essays. He left instructions to his children uh, upon his death that they should uh, do with his manuscripts as they see fit. His son published a very important volume of the Rav's Lumdus entitled, Igrod Hagrid, letters uh, mostly correspondence between the Rav and his father on uh, topics in Lumdus. And his daughters have published, uh, since his death, uh, six volumes of the Rav's philosophical writings, the most recent of which appeared this week. It's entitled Festival of Freedom, Essays on Pesach and the Haggadah. Um, And in an occasional series on KMTT, I'd like to discuss these uh, new posthumous volumes published uh, of the Rav. And I'll start this week with the first of them, which is entitled Family Redeemed, Essays on Family Relationships. The laws governing parent child and husband wife relationships would seem to be clear instances of Be'n Adam Lachavero. However, we know that Kaberta mecha is usually classified as a mitzvah Benadam Adam la-makom between man and God. Uh, and there are also many mamre chazal about the divine dimension of the marriage relationship, for example, the Gemara and Sotah, Amrabi Akiva, Ishvi Isha, Zachu, Shechina Be'nehem. There are many explanations for this. Uh, But in Family Redeemed, the Rav develops a doctrine which gives this concept new depth. According to the Rav, family relationships are inextricably bound up with the God-man relationship. Let me quote a passage from the book, and then we will discuss it and interpret it. The Rav writes, "...the relationship of God to us and our relationship to him lend themselves to description and interpretation in finite human categories." The Jew has learned to confess his faith in and his impassioned love of God by telling the story of people whom he loves and with whom he seeks to identify himself. Judaic faith and theology are linked with finite experiences and meaningful human relations. And now here's the key sentence. By developing proper human relation structures, the Jew learns how to love, revere, and serve God. Now, which human relations is he talking about? In the continuation of this passage he specifies two relationships, a uh, person's relationship with his or her parents and person's relationship with his or her spouse. And in order to uh, understand this, uh, let's define a couple of terms in the Rav's philosophy. Much of Rav Soloveitchik's thought constitutes a philosophy of man. In other words, what is the nature of man? By the way, when he says man, he means human beings. Uh, and how does halacha help Man confront God, confront the world, and confront himself. The foundation of his concept of man is the claim that man is incomplete. And this incompleteness results from from two situations that are built into the very essence of his being. First, that man is finite in relation to God's infinity. And second, each person is either male or female, and each one is incomplete without the other. Uh, Now, the awareness of one's incompleteness, is what the Rav calls loneliness. And hence, the lonely man of faith and other works now dealing with this condition of loneliness and even overcoming it is what he calls redemption. For him, redemption is not just when the Mashiach comes and the whole world is redeemed, but redemption is something that can happen to the individual. Uh, The building of connections to others, one's parents, one's spouse, one's community, Klal Yisrael, all of these help one overcome loneliness partially, and they point the way towards the ultimate the ultimate overcoming of incompleteness via one's connection to God. Now, uh, the Rav says that the uh, parent-child community and the husband-wife community are both a reflection of and a prologue to the exalted community of man and God. And I'd like to focus on these two definitions, a reflection and a prologue. In what way do these family relationships uh, reflect and constitute a prologue to the man-god relationship? They reflect the man-god relationship. Family relations can reflect this re- the man-god relationship if they exhibit qualities that transcend normal human relations or qualities that would seem to be unique to a transcendental relationship, to the man-god relationship. Uh, and this is the case with both of these family relationships. In the parent-child relationship, the parent exhibits a totally selfless love and the child exhibits a sense of identification and a sense of finding his origin in his parents and the unique aspects of a child's relationship to his parents receive halachic expression for the Rav uh, a philosophical idea is meaningful if it's expressed in the halacha. and uh, certainly the child has many unique halakhic uh, Obligations towards the parents. For example, there there are unique mourning observances for one's parents. Twelve months of mourning, as opposed to the usual one month. Uh, the kriya that one does on a parent is different. It's it's kriya on the heart, uh, as opposed to any other relative. Uh, there are severe punishments for striking a parent, for cursing a parent, and most of all the obligations of kibudumora, In other words, kaberet avicha vetimecha and ishi viv tiro. These Umora, these terms are usually translated as honor and fear. But the Rub interprets them differently. He, terp- he he defines them more along the lines of, of l- not honor and fear, but rather love and awe. And of course, love and awe are feelings that one is supposed to experience in relation to God. Uh, he says regarding Kibud, uh, the norm of Kibud is interpreted in categories of love. It's not just honor. Um, and it manifests... An experience of ontic unity, of a thou union. In other words, that there is union in terms of one being, one's being between the parent and child, as there is between man and God. Uh, his what he says with with regard to mora, ishimol uh, is even more striking. He says what the Torah meant with the command with its command of mora, is an inner relationship of admiration, profound veneration, and awe. One must revere his parents. They should arouse in his soul a craving, a longing, a deep fearful love, a tremor, and a great joy. These characteristics do not belong to the sphere of human mundane experiences. They stem from our transcendental awareness and are exclusively within the realm of the man-god confrontation. Similarly, the Rav writes elsewhere in the book that the husband-wife relationship also reflects the god-man relationship. It possesses two unique characteristics that are not characteristic of any other human relationships. And these are... Um, what he defines as total commitment and unchangeability. He says these are two unique traits of the God-Man-Covenant, and they are indicative of the matrimonial community as well. What does he mean by total commitment? It means that, that the relationship between husband and wife is not just a contractual agreement regulating one's rights. Rather, it is total. It encompasses every aspect of one's personality, the deepest recesses of one's being, a sense of absolute belonging and togetherness. And what does he mean by unchangeability? Uh, I mean, Judaism does allow divorce, so what is unchangeability? He says that generally, uh, human love, eros, male-female love, uh, is something capricious, whimsical. It's looking for for change. Uh, However, just as in the man-god relationship, the husband-wife relationship teaches man to find love in identity and in continuity. To summarize what I've said so far about the reflection aspect, man's relationship to God is based upon two things, his origin in God and his covenant with God. The origin aspect is reflected in one's relationship with his parents, which gives rise to unique halachic duties, and the covenant aspect is reflected in one's relationship with his or her spouse, which transcends other human contractual relationships. Now, given the unique characteristics shared by human-family relationships and the God-man relationship, it becomes clear how these family relationships serve not just as a reflection of the God-man relationship, but also as a prologue to them. As Rav Soloveitchik said in the passage that I quoted, by developing proper human relation structures, the Jew learns how to love, revere, and serve God. In other words, one builds a relationship to God via his relationships with people. And this is true, I think, in two senses. First, by exercising certain emotions with regard to other people, One learns how to exercise these emotions with regard to God. For example, uh, mora for one's parents points to reverence for God. The fidelity and devotion of husband and wife trains one to practice these virtues with regard to God. That which brings one to feel connected to his parents, love, reverence, gratitude, recognition of dependence, all of these should awaken the same feelings with regard to one's ultimate source, namely God, who creates and sustains mankind. The Sanctity involved in the relationship of husband and wife can help one develop the property of Kedusha, which is necessary for the God-man relationship. A couple's mutual commitment to each other and to their commonly held values can intensify and can pave the way for commitment to God. In fact, the very sense of loneliness and incompleteness that leads one to search for completeness through marriage and the ability that one develops in marriage to open and share one's existence These are all very important components in developing and establishing a relationship with God. Thus, the first sense in which family relationships are a prologue to the God-man relationship is that we learn to practice certain emotions with regard to people, and then we can employ these relationships with reference to God. The second sense, in which one builds a relationship to God via one's relationship with people, is that these human relationships, these family relationships themselves, become bound up with man's relationship to God. This is especially apparent within the threefold community of father, mother, and child, wherein the parents can imitate God most closely and become his partners. Uh, The begetting and the raising of children entails imitation of God on many levels. Creation, teaching, unconditional and boundless chesed, Uh, When the parents build a family based on the values of sanctity and religious commitment, they thereby are worshipping and drawing closer to God. By raising their children with proper values, that in itself is an act of worship. They bring their children into the eternal Messorah community. They make them part of the chain of tradition. Thereby, they grant them not just chaye sha'ah, not just temporal life, but chaye eternal life as well. Um... I think that, uh, homiletically speaking, we can find this uh, reflected very nicely in a comment of Rabbeinu Bahai on Parsha Truma. Um In general, when the uh, Torah talks about the two kruvim that were in the Kodesh Kodashim on top of the Aaron, it uh, uses the term Shnei kruvim. However, in Parsha Truma, it talks about Shnaim kruvim. Now, in general, whenever we see the term Shnei, like uh, Shnei siirim or Shnei b'nai uh, we infer from this halachically that the two have to be identical. Um, however, uh, when it says Shnaim Kruvim, Rabbeinu Bechai wants to say that this says that they should be identical, but not exactly identical. They should be similar, but except for one thing. The Hamek Davar makes a similar diuk, uh from Shnaim Kruvim. He suggests, if so, the two Kruvim were not the same. There was some difference between them. Because it says Shnaim Kruvim, they weren't identical. And he offers two suggestions to explain what the difference was between the two Kruvim that were in the Kodesh Kodashim. Uh, his first suggestion is based on a famous Gemara and Yoma, Daphnon Daled, uh, that the two Kruvim were male and female, and that uh, on Yom Kippur they would uh, unfold the parochet and everyone would see the two Kruvim embracing each other. And uh, they would proclaim, Ruchi batchem makom so one is that the two kruvim were male-female. His other suggestions, based on a Gemara in Chagiga, where uh, the Pasuk in Yecheskel talks about the, the creatures that had four faces, it says one was pnei adam and one was Pne kruv. And uh, there are several interpretations offered as to what is a kruv. The Gemara says kruv means, uh, based on an Aramaic word, it is a child. So it said, oh, but we already said pnei adam, there's a human face, so it, it, uh, the Gemara answer is no one was an adult and one was a child in other words the four faces were a, a, an eagle uh, and uh, uh, a lion I think and uh, an adam and a kruv an adult and a child and I think that we can say that uh, both of Rabbeinu B'chayi's suggestions are true homiletically speaking we can say this the centrality of the husband-wife relationship and of the parent-child relationship is symbolized by their presence in the Kodesh Kodashim, in the Holy of Holies. Um, And in fact, the Shekhinah, the Divine Presence, speaks from between them. In other words, in the Kodesh Kodashim, we see the very significance of the husband-wife and parent-child relationship because when these are locked in an embrace, then God speaks from between them. Shabbat Shalom.
0: We've been listening to Rabbi Rani Ziegler. By the way, uh, Rabbi Ziegler is also the editor-in-chief of the virtual Beit Midrash. In this week's Pasha it says that Moshe Rabbeinu comes and he speaks to the Jews, and the Jews don't believe him. They didn't hear, means they didn't listen, they didn't, they didn't accept. what Moshe Rabbeinu had said, because of kotzer ruach, shortness of spirit, the and, kasha, and the hard work. Then Moshe Rabbeinu goes to God and says, "Hey, Israel, The Jews didn't listen to me. how will Paro listen to me? Chazal this is one of the cases, the explicit cases in the Torah of a kal v'chomer. Kal means, if something is true of a case that's kal, that's on a light standard, on a light status, then surely it will be true for that which is of a heavier status. So here, if B'nai Yisrael didn't believe me, so Paro, who's a more difficult case, he surely won't believe me. All the Mephashim ask, but the Pasuk says that there's a specific reason why the Jews didn't believe him. Paro doesn't suffer from Kotzer Ruach, he doesn't work hard, he's not a slave. So it, it could be between you and me that Paro, for sure is a more difficult case than the Jews. But that's not what the Pasuk says. The Pasuk says the Jews didn't believe Moshe because they were out of breath and because they were working so hard. Their spirits were broken. Maybe Paul will believe him. Where's the Kal Vachomeheh? So Rabbi Lapian answered in the following manner. He said, what does it mean, and In the previous parasha, last week's parasha, in Pashtat Moshe Rabbeinu comes to the Jews, forms a few signs, and it says, on the spot, Vaya amena'am, the people believed. Chazal comment, it's an amazing thing. He spoke to them for a few minutes. Vaya amena'am, all of them. Moshe Rabbeinu was so worried, they're not going to believe me. lo he said to God. But it's not true. They believed him on the spot. And they bow down, and they thanked God for sending them Moshe Rabbeinu. So, how is it that a few weeks later, Moshe Benu comes, tells them that he spoke to Paro, he has a message. So, Veli Raplian said as follows: It doesn't mean they were out of breath because they were working so hard. It means shortness of spirit. The fact that the Jews heard a speech from Moshe Benu, and believed him, because they're really good people, they, they want to believe, but then they go home. The situation doesn't change they're still slaves, they still get up in the morning, they have to work hard. Paro is still this awesome, fearful, terrifying character. This shortness of spirit. The amount of belief they have is good for a day or two. It doesn't last, it doesn't meet match up with reality. The belief is in their heads, but actual reality stays the same, and a belief in your head isn't strong enough, Rabellius says, that what you believe in your minds isn't strong enough to really change the world if the world doesn't change. Similarly, it's also Jashav Chazal, also in last week's parashah, Moshe Rabbeinu speaks to the Zikainim. and it says that Moshe Rabbeinu and the Zikenim go to Paro. When they get there, it says Moshe and Aaron go to Paro. So Chazal said, what happened to the Zikainim? It says they all left to go to Paro, And then it says Moshe Rabbeinu come to, and, and Aaron come, come to Paro. What happened to the Zikenim? What happened to the elders? So Chazal say, well, as they were walking, so two disappeared over here, they made a little turn, another one fell apart, they went over a hill, two more didn't make it, they passed an open doorway, three more jumped into the thing. By the time they got to power's house, only Moshe and Avram left. So what does that mean? That they didn't believe, but they did believe. They they, they went out with, with Moshe. So it's the same thing? The closer they got to Paro, the more the reality of the fearful power, the awesome strength and tyranny of Paro, more that reality became apparent. So the, the thoughts, the beliefs in their heads, true beliefs, genuine beliefs, but they, they pale by comparison. They don't have the same amount of reality to stand up to this terrifying situation. So therefore, Eveliah says, that's the Kalvachomer. If B'nai Yisrael, when they believed, on the basis of a tradition passed down to them by their fathers, and they know who God is, who's promising, because that also was in the tradition of Abraham Yitzhak Yaakov, and they believe, but a belief in their heads cannot sustain them for more than a few minutes. So Paro, even when Moshe will do miracles and, 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 and all kinds of signs for Paro, but he doesn't have the same backbone. So he'll believe also, but how long will it last? When the situation doesn't change. And that's exactly what happens in this week's parasha, next week's Pasha. A number of times Power says, You're right, I, I, I believe in what you're saying. I see that it's true. Aniva amir Hashim, amir Hashim, God is righteous and I and my people are evil. And then Moshe Rabbeinu goes and he pulls away the plague, and the walls of the palace are the same walls, and the couriers tell Power what a great man he is, and, and Power all of a sudden says, No, I'm not sending anybody out. What happened to his belief? Was he really lying the previous time? Was he totally hypocritical? I don't think so. He believed, but, but the belief was in his head. He quotes, Melia well, quotes a saying of Revitza a student of one of the prime disciples of Revitza Salanta, who says, it says, He says, the distance between not knowing and yes knowing is enormous, between lo yodea v'yodea. But the distance between hayom you should know today and and you should return it, you should bring it in, you should inculcate it, assimilate it into your hearts, is even a greater distance. Distance between ignorance and knowledge is shorter than distance between knowledge and true assimilation into one's personality. And that's what the kotze ruach, of the Jews refers to. It was in their heads, but when you face reality, in your head isn't good enough. You have to use that belief that's now been put into your head, and you've accepted you have to use it immediately to change the reality. Because if the reality stays the same, then beliefs, true beliefs, even faith, real faith, is not on the same level of concreteness as the walls, the chairs, the slavery, the situation that the Jews are found in. And this, of course, is true in other areas, in all areas of life as well. We have commitments, we have beliefs, we make up our minds to do A and B. If it's not carried out into action right away, if the situation stays the same, whatever you believed in yesterday is weaker today, and after two days, becomes transparent, and after three days becomes a phantom, and after four days becomes smoke. And that's exactly what happened to the Jews when even the Jews, who had a whole long history that led them to believe. But in Mitzis, in, in reality, if, if nothing starts to move, if the belief doesn't lead them to start walking out of Egypt, and it didn't in the beginning, then these little beliefs in your head get put aside. They don't have, they don't have real roots in reality. And when it comes time to hear the same speech again, you can't even listen to it. And the Jews, really go home, Moshe Rabbeinu is left, that's how he feels, holding an empty bag. For today's Harachah um, Yomit, we're continuing, we're still at the edge of P'sukei zimra, And this time we're right after Yishtabach. I quoted a few days ago the Rif, who when he explained P'sukei Zimrah and said this, Baruch She'amal, before P'sukei zimra and Yishtabach after P'sukei zimra, then concludes, therefore, one is not allowed to interrupt to have a half from the beginning of Baruch Shama until after Shmoneser. There's, a, there's a, a, a missing link there. We know from the Gemara that you're not allowed to speak in Birkat Kriyat Shema. That the Gemara discusses explicitly. In Shmoneser, of course, you're not allowed to speak. You're not allowed to speak during Pesukei HaZimra for the reason that the Riff explains, because you have a Berkha before and a Berkha afterwards. But why can't you talk between Yishtabach, after Pesukei Zimrah and Baruchu in the beginning of Birkot yotze the Bif says, since you can't talk during the Psegeti Zimra, therefore you can't talk at all until after Shema There's one small link here which is missing. This halacha, the Bif, is quoted by, by, by all the postcam, it's quoted in the Torah. The Beit Yosef says that the reason is indeed implicit in what the Bif had explained because the had quoted, as I mentioned last week, the Rif had quoted the Mamar Chazal. Psegeti Zimra is based on what Chazal say in Bachot. No lam adam A man should always Arrange the praise of God, and only afterwards, David. Only afterwards, requestings. So, since the reason why you say psukah is as an introduction to Shemon Esrei, therefore you should not be mafsik between psukah and what comes. What comes afterwards? Truth is, the logic is not is not impeccable, because something has to proceed. You should praise God before you request. Doesn't mean you have to praise Him and immediately request. It means you shouldn't request things about God without some sort of introduction. But does it really imply that? One has to, as soon, as soon as one praises God, immediately have the request. And indeed, the Rabbeinu, Rabbeinu Yonah, the, the book called Talmidei Rabbeinu Yonah, uh, Rabbeinu Yona says that he thinks the Vif means it's a good idea. It's a Midat but it's not a real, it's not a real And Nonetheless, the Torah does not understand it that way, nor does the Mechaber and the Shulchan Aruch. They understand that it's, it's really awesome. However, uh, certain sources in the Rishonim, and then it's quoted by most poskim. say that it's still on a lesser level than the other uh, half-sex that we're familiar with. There really is no one unit that consists of Pesuchet Zimra, Yotzer, and shemar Esrei. It's not like shemar Esrei, which is one thing, or even Pesuchet Zimra, which is one thing. So therefore, they say that if one has a one of two things, either Tzorchei Mitzvah, something that's involving the service of God, for instance, sometimes you dive in early and you can't put on... A talit yet, or you don't have a talit. Your talit and fitin come in the middle of So the poskim say you should wait till after Ishtabach put it on then with a beracha. The beracha the is technically a hefsek; it has nothing to do with what we're doing now, but it's sochay mitzvah, so it's okay, or it's sochay Certainly it has to do with serving the community. So because it's a lesser degree of integration, so we allow a certain kind of a hefsek. Uh, some poskim don't agree with that either. It's not mentioned, for instance, in the tour, but no one says explicitly among the them they're against this idea, it's found in the Sefer Eshkol, and therefore most people are going to say, you should not be mafzeek in Pesuket of you shouldn't be mafzeek in Yotza, you're sure you shouldn't be mafzeek in Shmon Esrei, between Yishtabach and and Hu, you shouldn't be mafzeek, unless it's for a very important reason, a very important reason means not for yourself, but something it's either in the service of God, or the service of the Jewish community, service of the Kehila, service of davening, service of the people who you're, who you're davening with, and that's the, the source for different minhagim, which in fact did insert things between yishtabach and yotze, the one which we're most familiar with—it's—it's it's still done today—is during a section made the saying of uh, between yishtabach and and Baruchum. This goes against what the Rish says—you shouldn't be mafsik. It's—it's it's something else. Okay, it's talchey It has an important role. It's not—it's uh, not a private havsek and therefore, uh, according to most of these poskim, it's permissible, and that's really the minhag. In different times. In uh, Jewish history, the Ramah the mentions that the time between Ishtabach and Baruch Hu was a time when people would come and do Tzorchei rabbi. If you had a problem, if you had a complaint that you wanted the community to take care of. So you would come to shul and you would stop the davening and say, help me. When did they used to do that? Between Ishtabach and, and Baruch Hu. It's called Tzorchei Tzibu. So you're allowed to do that. They used to sometimes have appeals. Anything that, which you had to galvanize the community, you had to appeal to the community, so this was the time to do. You had the attention of because they started daffening. It's very clever. And the is not as is not as bad, it's not as serious. And that's all for today. I want to wish you a very good Shabbos. Shabbat Shalom. This is KMTT. Broadcasting from Gush Etzion will be back on Monday. We've just finished the fourth week of KMTT. Next Monday we will be back for more Shidurim, for more broadcasts on KMTT the Torah Podcast Kimi Tsionte Tetora Udvara Shem Yosharaim.